Alumni Audio Lab. Welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab. This is the issue number six. The Alumni Audio Lab is the podcast of the OEAD, which is the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. My name is Doris Bauer and in this podcast I talk with alumni who all studied or researched in Austria within different scholarship programs and now they work in many different disciplines and are very successful there. And we talk about the life, the research, the background and all which comes to our mind. And my guest today is Professor Rosalie Akala-Hall. I hope I pronounced it right. That's correct. <laughs> She's from the Philippines, and Rosalie, you're a professor of political science at the University of the Philippines with quite a lot of international experience. That's correct. And yeah, not, not only in Austria, which you visited the first time in 2006 yes. and 2007, within the North-South Dialogue program, but you've been to a lot of other countries as well. Yes. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. I'm very looking forward to hearing it. Rosalie, I'm very happy to have you here. Thank you very much for being my, my guest today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we will just start right away. And let's start at the beginning of your like, career or scientific way. When and why did you decide to become a political scientist? I wanted to be a lawyer at the beginning. And political science sounded like a good pre-law degree, uh, at least in the Philippines. But I think I changed my mind after I had a, a brief uh, experience teaching. Uh, I taught immediately after I did my undergrad, and I went to University of the Philippines, Visayas, which is one of our campuses in central Philippines, quite away from Manila. Long, long way to get, you have to fly to get there. And um, I discovered that I like teaching very much, and... Um, I decided then that I'd just pursue a graduate degree, a master's and a PhD instead of a law degree. How was the political environment back then in the Philippines? Was that part of your decision? Yes, it was a very interesting times when I went to college. This was 1987. We had just emerged from very long martial rule and uh, dictatorship under Marcos. And I remember in my early years in college that Things were highly unstable. There were coup d'etats. If, 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 not a lot of people realize, but there had been at least seven unsuccessful coup d'etats that was mounted against the, pres uh, the administration of Corazon Aquino from 1986 to 1990. And as a young university student then, I just remembered that uh, it was very difficult because you're scared that Well, first of all, the military might come to our university and, and start arresting people. Yeah, but uh, I think from there, in the early 1990s, things have gotten better for us. And I thought that the, the university is a very, very good environment for an academic career. We are the uh, premier state university in the Philippines and... Uh, Um, where I ended up, the University of the Philippines Visayas, is in the Visayas, far away from Manila. And, uh, and I like the local atmosphere and the fact that our students are recruited locally. So they don't have the airs of people who live in the capital. But you decided rather early to, to go abroad somewhere, to study somewhere else. Which was your first experience abroad and where? I went to uh, do a master's degree in Boston through a Fulbright scholarship. So that was very good. I, um, it's a very competitive grant, so I had to apply, and I, I got it in 1996. So that allowed me to do uh, a master's degree in the United States. And uh, I decided to go straight for a PhD in the same program, in the same university uh, thereafter. So the total, I was in the United States for six years. Yeah, I was very young then. I was in my mid-twenties. Yeah. And why did you choose the, the United States? Was it this decision for the United States or was it just, I want to go abroad and let's see which scholarship works out? Yeah, I, I did apply for several scholarships. I remember I even applied for a scholarship 
for in the Netherlands. And um, I did get the one in the Netherlands, but uh, it ha- I had been advised by then uh, my, my chancellor, Dr. Idia Sasson, that it was better for me to go to a program in the United States where there are also possibilities for doctorate later on. And since in the academia, you, you need a PhD. Yeah. You want to be placed in a program where there is an opening for, for PhD and uh, and it's very difficult to get a PhD with bursary, with the fellowship that comes with it. If I had gone to the Netherlands, uh, I may have to do another round of applications. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's not as, as uh, positive as my opportunities in the United States. That's why I, I decided I'd go for the United States. Yeah. And so you already decided back then that you wanted to um, take a, a academic career. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. I always, uh, the, the, my mentors, Dr. Edith Hasson included, always say that, you know, uh, in the academia, PhD is a minimum requirement. So, but if you don't want to teach, you do not need a PhD. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot and long, hard work to do a PhD. And I understood that, uh, so uh, they had been very supportive of me. My because the whole time I was at school, I was in fact supported by my university back in the Philippines. It's uh, I, I was on a fellowship basically, mm-hmm. so I, I received salary from my university back in the Philippines while I was abroad, and um, uh, that was a very good arrangement, and they supported me. Uh, six years I was away, and uh, they banked on me finishing the degree and coming back. And I, I knew I was coming back. They yeah, really counted on you. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's great. It's great to have such a uh, strong support from back home. Yes, so that's very that, important. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I said, you visited Austria as a scholarship holder already 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. And you researched, we'll come on your research <laughs> topics now, on the Austrian armed forces, which is... For a for a nice young lady, a very interesting. Sorry to say that, not really gender like, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a very interesting topic to choose. That do you wanted to research especially on the Austrian armed forces, or was it was first the scholarship and then the idea to do this research? Was it so, what is so special on the Austrian armed forces? Actually, it's it's not new to me. So when I came back, my my dissertation in the United States was about the relationship between the elected civilian officials in my country, the Philippines, and the Philippine military after the democratic transition. I mentioned about the coup d'etats. It was very difficult for our elected authorities to discipline our armed forces and make sure they don't cause trouble and things like that. So it's always been a research interest on my part, not just about the armed forces, but how the civilian authorities create oversight and, and control the military so that the military will will not use force against um, very standard, you know, human criteria and democratic criteria. So before the scholarship in Vienna, I had done research in the Philippines uh, and um, in Japan about the same topic as well. The, the whole premise is about here you have militaries that are quite unusual Unusual in the case in the Philippines because it was emerging out of a martial rule. It was involved in a variety of coup d'etats and there are some challenges in trying to reimpose control and oversight. And then in the case of Japan, they're not even a proper military because of their involvement in the whole history of World War II. So the way the civilian authorities deal with them is, is like, you're not supposed to be a regular military but we're trying to find ways to make international contributions so they had to deploy them overseas for peacekeeping for humanitarian assistance and all these things and so coming out of that I looked at Austria and your long-standing history of neutrality and um, and then you became a member of the European Union and then, although not a member of NATO, your, your country entered into a partnership with NATO, allowing you to send what at the time was quite surprising for a small country, 
a fairly large contingent to Kosovo. And uh, this was something that uh, in general of interest to me because I think it's part of the whole conversation within a society about what do you want your military to do? What's the acceptable uh, remit of functions that they can do? Can you deploy them overseas? Can you have them do peacekeeping or some other kind of operations that involve some level of force and questions about casualties, you know? Uh, so that to me has been a, a continuing research interest, uh, which started again with my PhD dissertation and just went on. So to this day, I still do, and my research still revolves around that, that question of what is it that members of society and political leaders want their military to do? So even questions of gender, for instance, mm-hmm. you want your military to reflect the same values as what society has. So if it, it means gender integration, you need to have women in there. And so you're trying to therefore examine how the military as an institution reacts to these pressures. That's a very interesting thought that the military also should reflect the same um, structures and, and values as the society does because I'm, I'm not sure if it works out. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult <laughs> yes, in, my, it is. In, in, the, in the current research that I'm doing, which is gender, the military is a very masculine institution. And if there's anything that they feel must be quite a strong resistance, it's it's really this this whole notion of of having women serve alongside. Um, Over the years, they've become, become more accepting to have women inside the organization. But in many countries, even the most liberal of countries, there are very, very strong resistance to having women do ground combat operations. Mm. They can be pilots, you know, they can uh, be tank commanders, but ground operations where they have to be embedded with other men, fighting face-to-face is something that that still is is not quite acceptable. But hasn't Mm -hmm. it been in history, in wars or somewhere else, that women and men were fighting together like at the front yes you know, in, in, in uh, many insurgent uh, groups uh, in the, the ones that I study like the uh, Communist Party of the Philippines and New People's Army and even the Moro uh, National Liberation Front they have female combatants so yes you know in, in the non-state groups that are insurgents they have had women uh, who fought alongside the men you know and carry guns and operated with them but the resistance seems to be with the formal state security forces like the military in having women uh, serve alongside. So I'm not exactly sure uh, where, where, that, where that, that kind of tradition comes from. But um, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I only know in, in the research that I'm doing right now, the most integrated country in terms of women being able to do cl- the closest to ground force operations is Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah I thought yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Because Israel uh, makes it mandatory for yeah, women for women as to well smell to, to serve. serve. The same and we will way be, as yes, men. men and we will be seeing that in the next yeah. few years in the case of Nordic countries yeah. because they have now made it mandatory for the women. Yeah, I've been to, to Israel in summer. And I've, yeah. I've, yeah and it was really, it was quite strange for us to see men and women, young men and young women, yes. both carrying the, the MPs and all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, let's talk. You already mentioned your actual research, but I want to start with the one before, I think, yes. about the Muslim women uh, oh, in, yeah. the, in the military in countries. You carried out research on the role of Muslim women in the military, mm-hmm. and now you're working on a research project on gender experiences of Austrian military, police, and civilian volunteers who are deployed um, overseas for peacekeeping and similar tasks. I got a general question before I ask you on the on the research you do. To me, it sounds like a really a niche topic because mm. military is not... I think there are not so many people researching about the military in general. And then gender is even a smaller topic. Why are you interested in such a... Sp- 
specialized topic and such a niche topic, or is it a niche topic? Am I it right? It is. Yeah, it yeah. is. Actually, uh, you'd be surprised, but uh, the the gender aspect uh, it's been a long-standing interest because, well, we have had gender integration in the Philippine uh, military since uh, mid 1990s. Yeah. Uh, they started admitting women uh, on a regular commission. Before we had, they call it auxiliaries. You know, women were admitted as auxiliaries, so their promotion patterns and advancement okay. are separate from that of the males. But beginning late 1990s, they had been admitted to the military academy, to the regular officer commissionship uh, as enlisted women. So ours is a volunteer force, so you women had to volunteer. And I've come across so many of these women who uh, had obviously a lot more choices in life, but they opted to for to to serve uh, in in the armed forces, it, despite and in spite the many threats it, it, in the Philippines. Maybe compared to let's say a country like Singapore, mm-hmm. if you volunteer for the armed forces, the chances of you being killed is so much higher because we have a lot of internal security threats and we deploy. Mm-hmm. internally against communists, against um, mm-hmm. Islamic separatists and you know, terrorists and things like that. So it's a very um, life-threatening business. But what, um, what are the reasons for women to join the army or the military? I did ask that question when I came across them. Uh, they comprise, by the way, roughly about 5% of the entire force yeah, in the army, a bit higher. And uh, many of them think about em- employment in the army as a very good steady sort of job okay. uh, they, they it's a carries a lot of benefits um, and they have to put in a minimum of 20 years and then they're eligible for all these uh, benefits so because they're recruited early by the time they put in the 20 they're still relatively young mm-hmm. to consider a second career so many of them uh, look at this and as a way to improve their economic well-being primarily. And many of them are just socialized into thinking they can be in the military because they are themselves from military families. Yeah, so they they have parents or siblings or uncles and aunts who had worked in the military and therefore were encouraged early on to, to apply. So I find that... Most of the women I recruit, uh, I've come across in in, in the in the Philippine military, are move within that circle. It's not that far fetched for them to volunteer and to be recruited. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a very interesting topic. It's an, a niche topic, but here actually in Vienna, the the reason why I ended up in at the University of Vienna is because the Institute for Politikwissenschaft has a gender research group. Yeah, and I actually was in touch with Saskia Stakovic, who is herself like a gender expert. And her studies is not about the Austrian military, but about the American military. Yeah, and, and so there, there are a lot of uh, the interest. Now. As I said, it's a niche research with the, amongst those who are looking at the military in general. But I guess a whole lot of the people who go into this research have an underlying kind of goal that, yes, you know, along with many other organizations in society, the military should also reflect values like gender integration and gender equality. So I certainly believe uh, that that is quite important. Can you go a little bit more in detail what aspects of gender you um, researched on in the Muslim study or research you've done? uh, I wanted to know how gender affected their motivation to be recruited, to to enter the, the armed forces as a form of employment. And once inside, what sort of experiences do they undergo that... Uh, is influenced by them being women, like the training, the way they are deployed. And I must say that uh, in, in conducting that research, I was, I was, there was a lot of surprises. The first one is that the training, they definitely put emphasis on equality. So the, the women do all the runs and the mm-hmm. rucksack carrying and the whole regiment is the same as the, as the, as the men. And they train in mixed group. So they're not like all women or all men in mixed group. 
But the surprise, surprising element is what happens to them after they have gained entry. Because the people they work with have very traditional views about the women. So the women end up actually uh, in, in uh, jobs or functions that follow very traditional criteria. It's not their fault, but commanders generally are very risk-averse. They would often say, you know, you should just stay here at the garrison or the headquarters. They hesitate in downloading or downloading and deploying the women in the conflict zone. They have all these notions that the safety of the woman colleague is, is of utmost importance. That's why they limit uh, what, what kind of jobs they do and where they get deployed. And it is, on one hand, a source of frustration for the women, particularly when they are still young. So you have to imagine that they're entering at ages 18 to, uh, if they graduated, if they got an advanced degree, uh, an undergraduate degree, maybe 18 up to about 22, 23 when they entered the force. So quite young and very motivated. And then you report to your unit and then they tell you, oh, you have to like do secretarial yeah. stuff. And it, it's very frustrating for many of the women. But it doesn't stop at that. At some point, the women will marry and have children. And then their motivations also change. So I find that the women at a younger age resent them being confined to traditional tasks within the organization. But when they get older and have been married and have children, their motivations change and they want more. They actually prefer to be in headquarters and garrisons because they wanted to balance their job and the demands the of their family. Yeah. So... It's quite different. And, and in many ways, I find huge parallels in, in the way they confront challenges brought about by their na nature of their work and their families. Yeah. So that, that sort of thing that, that encourages me. The men, by the way, I also ask about the men. The, the men are not, the commanders are just not just traditional, have traditional mindsets. They also, they just don't, think about families in the same way as the women do so the men the officers the, they just get thrown three years in Mindanao three years in Luzon they don't see their families they don't see their children and for them it it's just the way it is you know, they don't put up a fight you know they just accept it as a given but the women no they, they don't do it like that so to me, it's, it's so instructive about, again, gendered attitudes that, that people bring in to this occupation and how influential that is in, in the way they make decisions about whether or not it's a career worth doing or uh, getting out of. How do you reach the women in military who are participating in your research? I mean, can you just walk into a military base and say... Who wants to participate in no. my research? Or what connection? Yeah. What connections? Which connections do you need? Yeah. Well, in the in the military, um, two ways to do it. I had done research in the local unit in the city or in, in the province where I was. So this is the three hundred first brigade and many battalions under that brigade, which are, you know, very, very close. There's a military camp, like, you know, a one kilometer away from my university. There's Camp Monteclaro. There's a battalion uh, headquartered over there. So uh, over the years, I've developed good relations with the commanders. Um, I, I usually present myself to them and say, oh, I have this research and Would you be able to help me and in terms of permitting me to talk to your subjects and, and so on and so forth? Other times, I had gone to the headquarters all the way to Manila to get permission. And then I learned that I don't need to go all the way to the headquarters. All I need to do is ask the local commander because local commanders have a lot of discretion. I quickly realized that. So I never bothered with the international, with the headquarters back in Manila because it's just painstaking and slow. The only time I bothered was when I became involved with an international research 
it was an 11-country research and we were doing the same protocols, the same instruments. It's a survey instrument where we have to administer and things like that. And they required that I have to secure an approval in writing from the headquarters of the Armed Forces of the Philippines that they permit such study to transpire. So I did all the legwork and things. But in the end, I'm like, you know, it's a waste of my time. And because I could just have simply gone to the local commander and they would give me permission to, to administer the survey anyway. But I think the key is is really developing, you know, good relationship and and a rapport with the local commanders. And if they know that you're trustworthy enough, and in the Philippines, a lot of it is really facilitation. So some people know me, and so they ask these people, "Is you have to be vetted? Is she reliable? You know, is she's not communist? Is she or something like that?" <laughs> and, then, and then everything works well. Yeah. So your research is supported by the military? Yeah, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, I've not had encountered a situation in all my years of doing research where I had been rebuffed by the military and said, no, you can't do it. Whether I was doing something on women or on rebel integrees, these are former Moro Islamic Liberation Front rebels who had been integrated in the army, I tracked them down, I went to the various commands trying to talk to them, and I was permitted to do that. Or, for instance, uh, talking to paramilitary, because the, the, in, the, in, in Mindanao, the local army organizes a paramilitary, which is like a civilian defense group. So I'm also allowed to talk to this paramilitary, and then the military made connections and uh, allowed me to to get those interviews. So it it, uh, it works out very well. Of course, I have to give them a copy of my report after, and I really don't know what they do with it, but... <laughs> Put it somewhere in a, at the <laughs> shelf. Yeah, yeah, maybe too dense, you know, yeah. to, to read or something like that, yeah. I think you already said it before, but I'm not sure how can someone join the army at the Philippines. It's voluntary it's or is it... It's voluntary, yeah. yes. And, yeah, and you have to uh, send in an application and then they do some screening, physical, mental, and then um, you can either go as an enlisted person or you can be an officer. To be an officer, you have to have a commission. You either graduate at the military academy or go through what they call an officer candidate school or you go through... Um, ROTC, the Reserved Officer Training Corps. So I don't know if you have it here, but in, in the Philippines, if you're in college, you can volunteer to be a reserve officer uh, train, training, which you have to do on weekends or something mm-hmm. while you're doing your classwork Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. You do that for two years. And so once you graduate from that, you just have to do additional, may I think, maybe six months training, and then you become a commissioned officer. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. uh, something like the milites in Austria, who oh. are like uh, voluntary trainees. Yes. Who can, yeah, I, I think that's, yeah. that's that. Just one technical question. There was one term I found a few times in your document. It was mapping gender policy. How do you map gender policy? Oh, what what does yeah. it mean? <laughs> you map, you know, you, you start with what are the policies and guidelines that they have in place. And you try to assess whether these policies are gender neutral or do they affect women and men differently? Uh, things like that. So, for instance... For the longest time, the military had a ban on marriage within three years. So you serve one term. So you remember, you volunteer. Mm-hmm. So the contract that you sign is three years. And they specifically say that, you know, you can't marry within those three years. Mm-hmm. And then after three years, you can only marry if you get the permission from your commander. It's, it's really, really strange. And so for the longest time, because they only had males, you know, that's fine, three years, you know. And then when they had females, for some reason, they reduced uh, the, the number of years of the ban for the females. Only but the, for the females. Only for the females. And they, tried to, they were flagged, actually, by the Philippine Commission on Women and said, that particular policy is not gender neutral. 
what are you assuming by by uh, having a shorter ban for the for the men as it is for the women? Well, because women get pregnant. It was a shorter term for the men or for the women? It's a shorter ban for the men, longer for the women. Because okay. they think that, they they look at it, the way it was explained to us is that it was a return on investment. If we trained you for a long time, and if you get pregnant, you are the equivalent of an operational loss because we are not able to utilize you 100% as it would a man. Because a man does not get pregnant. He can impregnate somebody. And even the test of, you know, has that man violated the ban or not is a high test because then you will have to investigate who is this woman he has impregnated. Whereas a pregnant woman, that's a low evidence test. Yeah. So in, anyhow, it was, uh, they were flagged and then they just got rid of the ban altogether. Uh, things like that. And uh, even the key element about gender integration is making sure that you have facilities for the women. Billeting facilities, bathrooms, mm -hmm. uh, and, and other amenities because uh, they may train as a mixed group, but in terms of billeting, they have to be separate uh, because of issues of sexual harassment and things like that. So part of the mapping really is that just combing through all the policies and guidelines that they have and just making an, uh, an assessment whether do they affect men and women differently. And, and one of the things that I realize about the military is that, yeah, they have policies and guidelines, which on paper sounds very good. But there is a phrase there always in most of the guidelines I saw that says, at commander's discretion. So at the end of the day, whatever the he guideline says, mm -hmm. he can undo whatever the okay. guideline says because it says commander's discretion. Mm -hmm. And commander's discretion therefore leaves the uh, impact of the women, of these policies to the women, dependent on whatever gender views the commander has. I haven't asked this as example. Was from the Philippines or from Austria? That's from the Philippines. From the Philippines. Now, in, mm -hmm. in Austria... It's very strange because in the Austrian Armed Forces, of course, only men serve for the most part. It's the 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 it's a required uh, the service. The women, if the women come in, they do so as volunteers. Yeah, volunteers. And uh, very very small numbers, as you can imagine, in all European countries in general, where uh, where where women are not required to serve as mandatory. The volunteer force and composition of women in the volunteer force is very tiny. Mm. It's very small. And and I understand it's also a question of they're just not motivated. You know, there are just other op opportunities yeah. out there and better opportunities available for the women than it is to joining the military. Mm. So, yeah, that, that seemed to be the case. And what is your um, actual research, your current research about in Austria? The way they deploy, and if, if the proportion of women who deploy, what uh, get deployed, what are their experiences? And uh, the, the deployment numbers for Austria are, again, quite very low, which is, again, not surprising, given the very low numbers in the general population to begin with. But um, there had been prior research I came across uh, that was also made by people from the University of Vienna that looked at the experiences of the women, not that are deployed, just, just in the regular unit that is operating within Austria. And the incidences of sexual harassment is still considerable. So there, there are some tensions about issues with respect to how the men behave towards the women. That's a key concern. And I think by and large... Austria included many European countries hesitate to have women deployed, even for UN peacekeeping. So the numbers are low, not just because in the general population, the women are very few, but because it is some kind of a policy on the part of the government that they are not willing to send the women in missions that they consider are too risky. Because they're too risky, because they think they distract the men or... Risky it's, it's for the lives of the women. Of the, women. The, the general uh, threat scenario where they're sent is, uh, as far as I know, where the women 
volunteers had been sent. They had been sent to Kosovo. They had been sent at the time before the pullout in uh, Golan Heights. They were there. But um, they were generally in low-threat missions. And um, it's a kind of uh, preference, if I can say that, which arises from the, the general anxiety that if you send the women in you know, difficult missions like Afghanistan for something like that or in Iraq, the risks uh, of, of casualty are, are so much higher. And there is apprehension that maybe your society will not be too keen on, on having that on the news that uh, uh, women, you know, got, women killed got killed or, yeah, yeah, in, in, the, in the line of duty and things like that. So it's that kind of uh, the scenario. But I also had that insight about how the structure of deployments in this country seem to rely more on the armed forces and less on the civilians. So apparently the budget goes directly to the Ministry of Defense for, for UN peacekeeping. And um, they do not really, are not keen rather on recruiting from the civilian side to be able to go. Of the few civilians who had been deployed, very few numbers, they were not in missions again that are in high threat environments. So from a civilian perspective, the benchmark supposed to be is that you send more civilians and you send more women. But that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And it's ha not happening for a variety of reasons. Yeah. So you would hope that things will change uh, in the future. But I don't see it happening at any point. Unlike, for instance, you know, in the Nordic countries where you expect to see some changes just because they decided that the, the women will serve alongside. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mandatory. I know that the Austria's mil Austrian's Austria's military has they have their own research units on mm. on some parts. Are you working with them as well, or uh, do you get somehow yeah. in touch? Or yeah, I'm trying to get in touch with the doctor, not Doctor Gardner, because Doctor Gardner is with the OIIP, Gunter Fleck, to Gunter Fleck, the Defense Academy. Mm. I he hasn't responded to my emails yet. And uh, I'm trying to, I'm getting desperate. Uh, but I had a, another um, a colonel who is a retired officer of the Austrian Armed Forces who's facilitating on my behalf. And I think I may have to like send a kind of follow up yeah, yeah. to make sure that I get the interviews. But uh, he, he may be on holiday or something or not back from summer hours. So I'm hoping I could get down that interview. So apart from Dr. Gunter Fleck, There's also Dr. Gartner with the OEEP. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember. Um, the o Austrian International Institute, Institute for, for International Politics. Politics, something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. The OEEP, which had done a lot of studies yeah. on security as well. And, and Saskia is a deputy director over there. there. There's also some people I'm able to talk to over there, Dr. Gartner, whom uh, I'm still trying to... Um, Down. He's retired, unfortunately. So, but he was one of the few people who had uh, done uh, work on the Austrian military. I think mm -hmm. what I find really challenging is that uh, it's not really the kind of topic that most Austrians do research on, on the military, if they're civilians, mm -hmm. unless they're connected with the de Defense Academy. Two, the, the people I know who, are, who have studied them like the, the, the group sociologists, they were much more interested on the dynamics of the Austrian Armed Forces and as an organization, but not really on deployment. So that's a very difficult thing for me to, to manage because it just dawned on to me. It's like, oh, so it's not really something that people study about. It, yeah, it looks like, it yeah. looks like. I want to switch now a little bit to your yeah. teaching and to your academic life because I've read you teach a course named Understanding Gender, yes. which I find very interesting because I think this is a topic which not only students would need. Which role does gender in your work as an academic play and which are the biggest obstacles there? Yeah, the Understanding Gender is a general education course. It's um, uh, one of those courses that freshmen and sophomores get, you know, when they're still new. And um, I call it a semester-long gender sensitivity training. 
it's really my task to introduce and make my students, you know, be aware that there that sex is different from gender, that there are all these like gender roles and gender expectations, but we need not be confined to what these binary categories and that there are other categories and you know, trying to explain that and at the same time hoping for the best that at freshman, sophomore, you know, they would be more receptive and at the end of the class, they would take something from it and, and apply that to their everyday life. And um, in the many years that I have taught uh, this, this particular course, one of the things that I had asked, one of the things that we do in class, or I would have them, for instance, um, go and in interview people who work on gender issues like the women um, women's desks police women's desks for instance or a social worker who deals with rape victims and things like that and uh, it's it's I think quite encouraging that a lot of these students um, come out of the class and and, and then gain more understanding I don't know if this is a good measure but in the years that I've taught I've actually, <laughs> more recently, more and more students are coming forward in reporting cases of harassment than they did they did not before. So I take that as as a, as a kind of like a measure that they now have a better understanding that what happened to them was a violation. Uh, whereas before, they might just simply shrug it off and say, "Oh, it's just the way men behave," and things like that. So. I hope that with this particular class, you know, they, they, they gain some more practical understanding and at the same time come out of it and, and to be more gender sensitive and to um, be more aware of, of uh, how, how they relate to each other as, as young men and women. Yeah. yeah, but I think this is a very important response you get when women are coming and They get aware that this is not okay what is happening to them in some way. So, yeah, yeah. It's great. It's great, yeah. yeah. Oh, on one hand, it's a lot of yeah, work. And for, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Also of, uh, difficult and hard to deal with. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of work, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm more concerned. The women being more assertive, I think, uh, is just half the work done. The other half is with the males. It's, uh, I find it uh, quite difficult with, uh, with, with male students to kind of undo so many years of the way they were brought up to deal with, with women, which, again, is, is typical in my culture, you know, very macho orientation. And um, I think that uh, the, I, I measure at least my sense of achievement in this class with how much gender sensitivity I'm able to impart to my male students. <laughs> yeah. That's a good turn to my next topic because mm. I've read your writing for a blog about higher education life now and then. Yeah. And I read articles about stress in academic life and the life and problems of PhD scholars. Mm. I already mentioned at the beginning, it's very hard work. And you also question yourself about your own life and the way you choose for your career. Um, which meaning has this blogging about the academic life for you? I think it's a very important to kind of... Um, I, I look at the blog as a way of connecting to other academics like myself, female academics like myself, uh, in, in an environment like the Philippines and outside of Manila, where uh, there may be a lot more opportunities for growth within the career you've chosen, but at the same time, trying to balance that career with other aspects of your life, like your family, your personal health. I think many academics are, are not very good. Just, you know, in, in, within my circle, there have been a lot of concerns about health issues. You know, a lot of my colleagues, you know, diagnosed with high blood pressure and, um, you know, high blood sugar and cancer and all these things. And, and a good chunk of that, therefore, is just trying to kind of in, um, share with people the need to also take care of yourself even as you try to advance in your career at the same time give back to your community which is also very important in however uh, way you can yeah and and giving back to your community i think is uh, to me is is, uh, is is as important as succeeding in your in your chosen career 
Yeah. And you chose to go international. You spent nearly half of your academic career abroad somewhere. Yeah. What are the benefits? What are the obstacles? Well, the benefits is that your network expands considerably and it's uh, uh, the ne network that sustains you in terms of opportunities for workshops, presentations abroad, research projects, collaborative ones uh, with, with other people. That travel, definitely, that comes with it. But the drawback generally is that uh, you are away for quite a number of times and it's very... Uh, disorienting. Um, I had been very fortunate because my university is very good uh, in terms of supporting me and allowing me to do things and go abroad and attend workshops, present papers. And so I'm away from my post quite a ways. Uh, but they allow me to make arrangements with my students and with my classes, even if I'm away. Uh, they, they don't like hold me down uh, and, and just say, stay in Iloilo or something like that. So I've been fortunate in that regard. But the drawback for me is, is really I'm unable to contribute more locally just because I'm away uh, for, for, for quite some time. I have been meaning and wanting to to work with our local human rights office or the local military unit in their programs. I've been able to do it a little bit, but because I'm away for quite some time, I'm not able to, to sustain it. So the last engagement I had, for instance, is with the Philippine Army, the women office, the gender office of the Philippine Army. And I basically volunteered myself. I just said... <laughs> I presented myself to the director of the gender office. I said, you know, I want to do a research about policies of the Philippine army on, on women. And I don't know what kind of money you have. I'm not picky. You don't have to pay me. Just, you know, pay me Just for like, me fly me in to, I don't know, to wherever it is that I need to interview people to your various units because the... The people I have to interview, they have to not come from the headquarters. They have to be in deployed units. And she was so happy. And, and she sourced it out somehow. And again, I said, I accept pittance. You don't have to pay me at all. <laughs> I work for the university. So I'm already paid by my university. So this is a good arrangement. And, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I try to balance the kind demands for academic work I have and the international networking with what I feel is important, which is to help build the institutions in my own country, in my own locality, so that they, be, they improve, you know, they, they are better. Because what's the whole point of doing research if you can't make things better, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I, 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 I try to do things. I wish I, I could do this more, not just with the Philippine Army, but also with the Navy and, and the way they recruit with the paramilitary, but, you know, one, one step at a time. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And one step to my last question. Yes. Which plans do you have for the future, for your research, for your work? Where do you see yourself as a researcher, high level or teaching or at the base or supervising? Yeah. What do we want to do in the future? How do you want to academic life yeah. look like? I want to be able to keep doing this. <laughs> Until I retire at 65. I, I love research. And to me, it's there's something about being able to interact with people and engage with a whole variety of um, uh, you know people who are in security, people who are in the military, and learning about the nuances in, in the way they do their job. So I get motivated. I never run out of motivation in that regard. And... Uh, I don't know. I'm now 47, so like my retirement is 65, 18 years. I just hope I'd be able to keep on doing this, you know, do research, do field work, which is very difficult, as you can imagine, because in my line of work, you go where the military is, and the military is deployed in Mindanao. They're deployed in dangerous places. So I just hope that I have the strength to be able to do that kind of field work and the concentration and the luxury to do the writing. The writing is very important. And this is one of the things that I so enjoy being here, enjoying the OAD fellowship, is that I 
actually I'm able to like just concentrate sit down and sit and down write. and write. That is such a luxury if you're an academic. Because as you can imagine, if in a regular setting you spend a whole lot of time teaching, preparing for your lectures, meeting with students, supervising students, there's very little time to do the actual writing. But I'm here. Three months, so I'm writing. So I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, you know, you see me every day. My life seems to be spent a whole lot of time at my cave. My cave is the National Library. Oh, yeah. So I split my time. <laughs> I, I, I'm there for like seven hours, six hours. And I just I just enjoy it, you know, just to have the luxury to write. And, and I hope that I would just have the opportunity and the luxury of time to be able to do this. That's great. Yeah. Do you have some topics on the screen you want to research on in the near future? Well, uh, well, as you, as you can imagine, being an academic, I have like all sorts of things Thousands. going on <laughs> in my head. But uh, I do have some projects uh, lined up for next year already. So I'm doing something on uh, peacekeeping deployment for my the Philippine military. So that's already on the pipeline. And then um, it's very similar to what I'm doing here but in the Philippine setting, because that has not been studied yet. And then I'm, I'm doing something on um, police, which I have not done at all. It's like, oh, that's true. You know, I've always studied about the military, but never about the police, because they also do uh, internal security. They, mm -hmm. they also operate inside the Philippines in, in response to internal security problems. And the other one has to do with local civilian control mechanisms. So Local crisis management committees, you know, like right now in my country, there is a siege in Marawi. There are these uh, Islamic uh, state operatives that yeah. had holed themselves up in the city in the south Marawi and had been fighting our military for the last four months or so. Well, okay. You know, it's just mm -hmm. it's not never ending. So I wanted to look at the civilian committee that's trying to respond to this and how they relate to the military was doing all the operations. As you can tell, it's, it's really very difficult. They do aerial bombing, they do frontal assaults, and it's their city. So there's some very difficult situations and difficult decisions have to be made with respect to what type of operations can the military allow to do without destroying whatever is left of your city. So that's kind of like one of the things I also would like to do. It's on the civilian side, but how they relate to the local forces that are operating within the area that they're supposed to be in charge of. There's yeah. a lot of work coming up for you. I know, yeah. <laughs> Rosalie, I wish you good luck with that. Oh, and I'm, thank, thank you. you very much for this talk, for this conversation. It was really interesting oh, listening to you. Thank you. And it's great to have you here at the Alumni Audio Lab. Yes. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Alumni Audio Lab.